0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for being who you are. We thank you that we can trust you, we can come to you uh, with our needs, and we can rely on you as a faithful God who is always faithful to keep your promises. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us more about yourself this morning, that we would see more clearly who you are, um, and in light of who you are, that we would respond, that we would see our sinfulness, And that we would repent and believe, that we would trust in you, that we would be transformed, not just informed this morning about who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we get to continue in our study through the Old Testament. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be in the book of Amos and Obadiah. Probably not a place that you travel to very often in the scriptures, but um, books that hopefully you'll get a taste for, um, a desire for, to see the benefits that God has for us in his word um, through the prophet Amos and the prophet Obadiah. As I was talking last night with um, my parents and my wife, they had studied a little bit and read through Amos and Obadiah in preparation for this morning, and it was fun to hear what questions they had. Because as a teacher, you never really remember the questions you had. When I first was reading through it, and that's a huge benefit to like write those questions down, to say, what... What do I not know about these books? Because you're talking to a group of people here this morning that maybe aren't super familiar with Amos where you know, you've know you been taking a bath in it for six weeks and you're just absorbed in it and so excited about it you want to share that. But um, I think there's a lot of questions about these books when you read through it. It just sounds like a lot of judgment. I don't know if you were able to read through it over the past week, but it sounds like there's just a lot of hellfire and brimstone, death, um, and judgment for sin. It just feels like a heavy book. Um, it feels like a weighty book, um, and I think for us to to really get a grasp of what God is communicating, both about His people and about Himself, um, hopefully we'll be able to provide some tools so that as you read through these books, as you study through them on your own, um, you'll get a greater, a grander view of God's plan of redemptive history and uh, of His character. So we'll start in Amos. Amos is um, the title of the book. As we often see in scripture, he's also the author of the book. He was um, a prophet. Um, He actually lived in the southern kingdom. So to trace back some of our context here, we've got to know where in history we find these prophets. So um, we're in the split kingdom, the ununited kingdom of Israel. We have the northern tribe of Israel and we have the southern tribe of Judah. Amos was actually not a prophet by trade. Um, He wasn't trained in the school of prophets, but he actually was a shepherd and a a fig tree farmer. So this was a a secondary occupation for him uh, that God called him to. And he actually was from the town of Tekoa, which is about 10 miles south in Jerusalem in the southern um, half of the tribes of Israel and Judah. So he's from Judah. And as we see here in verse 1, it says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa which he saw concerning Israel. So we have to remember not to just glaze over that. That's our target audience, right? The audience with whom he's writing to is Israel, and he's referring to the northern tribe, the tribes of Israel. So that's our audience, that's our author. Uh, we also need to understand kind of the role of a prophet, which uh, Scott did a great job last week of kind of inclu- including us into what the role of a prophet was. Um, a great way to summarize that is just foretelling and forth Foretelling would be prophecy, right? When they told of something that was going to happen. And forth is the preaching, right? They're preaching God's word, what he's already said. And so the role of a prophet is to preach and also to foretell what God has told them. So in both roles, they're just speaking what God has said, either about the future or what he said in the past, how it applies to the present, Those are the roles that that Amos is fulfilling as he's carrying this message to the the northern um, tribe of Israel. And we also need to know one of the things that's super helpful in reading through the prophets is the pattern of the prophets. We need to understand the pattern of the prophets. So if you get one tool out of this morning, this is a very helpful tool when you're studying through the prophets. There's four, um, four steps to the patterns you see in the prophets. You see accusation. You see judgment, you see a call to repentance, and you see mercy. You see accusation, you see judgment, you see a call to repentance, and mercy. Now if you just had a postcard or a sticky note or something and you picked four color highlighters and you just wrote a legend or a key with those four things, you would be able to go through all the prophets and categorize things and understand what God is doing in this time around these nations much more clearly to be able to see what's going on, to, to grasp why things are happening. So that's a helpful tool I wanted to communicate to you guys, because as you study on your own, um, that helps you interpret what's happening throughout the history. And uh, the, the mantra or the motto of these messengers, for alliterative purposes, messengers, prophets, as we were talking about still, uh, would be, you become like what you worship. That's what they're hitting every time. You become like what you worship. Don't worship these graven images that don't speak, that don't talk, that don't walk, that don't do diddly. But worship the one true God who is the creator of all. Who is the Lord of hosts. Who has done all for you and will provide and keep his promises. Worship him. So that's the mantra that they hit, that drum they hit constantly as they're preaching and proclaiming is you become like what you worship. Worship is formative as we looked at in the Psalms. So to understand where our author is coming from and the audience receiving it, we understand it's from Amos to Israel, the northern half of the split kingdom. But I think it's important for us to not just glaze over the first two chapters because he says this is the audience, but then we spend all this time talking about surrounding nations. So what's that about? He talks about uh, Damascus. He talks about Gaza, Tyre. Edom, Moab, all these other places, and it kind of gets us off track almost. So why does he lead with that? Why do we start with judgment on the sins of the surrounding nations? Well, I think it's important for us to understand um, he's actually honing in on his target. So if you actually look, this is really cool, if you look at a map um, of the surrounding nations, you actually get Israel in the center, In the northeast, you have Damascus, who he starts out with. And then in the southwest, you have Gaza down here, which are the first two. And then he hones in a little closer, and he comes up to Tyre, which is just north of Israel. And then to the kind of southeast, he has Edom. And then even closer, he comes in to Ammon and Moab, just next to Israel, and then to the south, Judah. So as he's going through these nations, and he's actually circling in, He's honing in on his target. Who his audience is to actually pinpoint the actual heartbeat of the audience of the message is Israel. Um, But it's not just a targeting. He's actually going to have a comparison. You see a side-by-side comparison of these pagan Gentile nations being judged for sin. And then right on display, you have Israel's sin. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So kind of a breakdown, you can split it. The first six chapters of Amos are about... Uh, the messages for the nations, especially Israel. So in the first couple chapters, you get this um, poetic um, statements of judgment for sin. And what you see is the time spent on the judgment for Israel is at least three times larger than the judgment spent on any of the other nations. So Israel is definitely the target audience of this letter, and God is trying to get their attention about some sin issues. So he judges these nations, these Gentile nations, for um, uh, a myriad of sins. He judges them for um, the sins of cruelty, for oppression, for slavery, and murder. These are sins that aren't just committed, you know, um, here and there, but committed on a grand scale, like wartime scale of committing of these sins. So it's not just like, oh, every now and then, you know, you pass over somebody or you kick somebody to the side, um, somebody gets murdered, we'll just handle it in the judicial system. But this is nations warring against each other and murdering each other and cruelty within the nations. Um, this is stuff that God is going to judge because he's a holy God. He will not put up with sin. God's sovereignty is universal. That's what we get from this, that he is over all the nations, not just his chosen people. But he will judge all the world for sin. Every nation, man, woman, and child will have to account for their sin before a holy God. And Moving on to chapter 2, we're actually going to see the chosen nation. So he starts with Judah, spends about three verses, and he mentions their neglect, their reject um, of God's word that they've set aside. And then he hones in on his main target, Israel, the northern nation. And in this, he actually categorizes two Two types of sins, um, two sins that he addresses and we'll look at um, through the book of Amos. We'll see, um, first, the social and political injustice, and secondly, we'll see the religious sins as well. So I think this is where it gets super practical uh, for us when we deal with injustice because we deal with it in our nation now today. Amos is applicable for us, their nation was dealing with the same problems of Um, murdering of babies, of um, injustice in the court system, things not making sense from God's moral standard. And we deal with that sort of oppression and neglect, um, the righteous being set aside and sidelined and looked over. We deal with the same thing. So Amos is actually really practical and helpful for us to see how God looks at sin and how we are to respond as well. So if you flip with me a little bit, chapter 2, Uh, verses 6 and 7, talks about some of these sins. It says, Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. And then in four one we see those who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. And in 5.12, we see again... 5.12 we see again, For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate, which is the place uh, where justice was to be upheld and executed. These are some of the sins of social and political injustice that Israel was being accused of. And what's important for us to understand is what God has already said. That's what the prophet is preaching against. Don't do these things. But he says this because in Exodus 23, verses 6 through 8, you don't have to flip there, I'll read it for you. It says, You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from the false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. You shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in right. And in Deuteronomy fifteen eleven, it says, "For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you: you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in the land." It's important for us to know that this judgment against uh, the northern um, half of Israel, the nation of Israel, is not something that's um, impulsive. Right? It's not just like, oh, you guys are sinning, smack them upside the head. You know, judgment's coming, I can't believe you did this horrible thing. But God's already told them how they're supposed to live. He's told them what they are to obey. And they're specifically held accountable because they are the people of God, which we'll look at here in a minute. And what we see here about God is important for us to grasp for ourselves. Because this is showing us the character of God, what he cares about, who he cares about. So what about you? It's clear in God's word that he holds his people accountable for how they treat others. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 25 when he says he's going to come back and be the judge of all things. And he specifically says he will judge how you treat the oppressed or the afflicted. James brings it up when he talks about true religion. It's for the widows and the orphans in their time of affliction and that we would be unstained from the world. This is important for us to grasp and apply to ourselves. So specifically with these nations, the nation of Israel, they were in a time of prosperity. Okay, They were doing good. It was time of King Jeroboam II. So he's not right after the first Jeroboam who started the northern split. But he's several um, kings down the line. Um, But he was basically a conqueror. He's like somebody who's you know, cashing checks, taking names, whatever the phrase is, he's dominating, right? He's taking over other nations, prosperity's growing, people are rich, and in this time of prosperity, instead of praising God and thanking him, what they're doing is they're oppressing the poor. And Amos comes to them and says, what are you thinking? These are the people who God brought out of slavery in Egypt, yet you're enslaving the poor and not giving them their day in court. I mean, how does this make sense? Like, you are the nation that... Can't, I brought out of slavery, yet you're enslaving your own people. So a money is a huge topic, a huge pinch point in our lives. So the question for us is, How? what's your attitude towards money? Do you have a, a pining for it? Is it something you long for, you sit on, you huddle around, that you praise? What about giving? Do you have a, do you have a heart that's a cheerful giver? If not... It's not something that you just say, bippity-boppity-boop-boop, I'm a cheerful giver. Done. Right? It's a heart issue. So you actually have to come to God and say, God, I'm diagnosing the heart issue here, and I need your help because you are the God of hearts. Will you help me have a Christ-like attitude in regards to my money, in regards to how I give? What about um, seeking to know the needs of others? People that are around you, are is it hard to know the needs of others? Do you care about people that are struggling? Do you even know what's going on? I think the important question, word in that question is, do you seek? Do you seek to know the needs of others? Do you take action to, to actually care? Or is it nice to just hang out with the prosperous, right? Because they're always going to buy my dinner. They're always going to pay for something for me because I like to get, but not so much sacrificially give. I think that's important for us to analyze in response to these sins that Israel is being accused of. But not only is there social and political injustice going on that God is accusing them for, there's a root issue here. It's not just the surface issues that we're dealing with, but there's actually these sins um, that are categorized as kind of religious sins. And actually, what we mentioned earlier was these are God's chosen people. So we'll see here that God's judgment is different for Israel than the other Gentile nations. It's severe. And there's reasons for that. These people, uh, the nation of Israel, rejected God's law. And they commanded the prophets to be silent. They kept telling Amos to go away. We don't want to hear it. You're just speaking a bunch of bah humbug. Get out of here. And there was practiced cult prostitution. And they belittled God's word And God's people. Look with me in chapter 3 verse 2. This is where um, we're going to see the reason behind this long letter of accusation, judgment, calling to repentance and mercy for Israel. In verse 2 it says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities to uh, try to snag a quote from a superhero movie. You know, Spider-Man, when he says, with great power comes great responsibility. His dad's like dying, but he's got this like deep voice. So here what the prophet is saying, similar to that, he says, with a great calling comes great responsibility. God has called you. He's chosen you. You are his chosen nation, but with that comes responsibility. You are supposed to be salt and light. ...to these pagan nations that are looking in. Instead, you are committing immoral sins. You are upholding injustice. Your justice is poison and wormwood. It's a bitter herb that he talks about. You're just as bad as these pagan nations, if not worse. So they are being held responsible. With great calling comes great responsibility... ...and great judgment for sin. And it's important for us to see... ...as we kind of apply this to our own lives... This is talking a little bit, basically, about God's election and his choosing. I don't think that's too far to jump to say God's election, his choosing of this nation of people is not a blank check for irresponsibility. That's important for us to grasp as believers. A lot of times we get people, people will say, well, God's election doesn't make sense because basically you're secure, you're good, you just kind of live your own life. Paul talks about that. That may I continue in sin, that grace may abound? God forbid. Right? He says, no way. That's not how it works. God's, response, God's election of his chosen people is not a blank check for irresponsibility, loose moral standards, and presumption upon God's grace. Election never should lead to presumption, but it should lead to great responsibility. We know we have been chosen. We know God's word. We have his truth We are to live authentically. Live as you've been called, the New Testament talks about. It's actually, God's election is a heightened responsibility to live up to God's righteous standards. And he calls us to be that way and he enables us to live that way. It's not just to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. This is important for us to understand. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as he who chose us in him before the foundation of the world, he said that we should be holy and blameless before him. Israel had the greater sin. The greater sin of neglecting and rejecting God's word and God himself. So what's the solution? Well, Throughout the book of Amos, we'll see um, judgment. um, And the judgment specifically for them, we can see in chapter 3, verses uh, 11. Chapter 3, verses 11, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. This was a prophecy of the nation of Assyria, a northern nation that, at this time, had not become any sort of world power. Okay, this is God saying, I'm going to cause this to happen. I'm going to raise up a nation, and they are going to bring judgment on you. And actually, he talks about even just 10% surviving. Man, that seems harsh, right? Only 10%? No math major, you're saying? I am. Doesn't matter. Uh, (laughs) 90% is the other half of that. Sorry. 90% is the other half of that. That's huge. That seems like a heavy, a heavy judgment. It's important for us to understand that we can't go through the Old Testament books and judgment and remove God's justice and say, well, this is how he was then. But I like to hang out in the New Testament because it's a little easier for me to understand. That's not what we're here to do. (laughs) We're not here to cut up God's word and say this makes sense for me and this doesn't, so I'm going to chuck this part. That's idolatry and it doesn't work and your only destination is hell from that point because you're making a God in your own image. You're doing what they're accused of doing. It's important for us when we're talking to and evangelizing others, they have questions about this, right? They have questions about how the severe judgment. But what happens if Think with me for a minute. What happens if we take away God's justice? What happens? What happens to the cross? Ineffective, right? It totally makes it an overstatement. What a waste. Why would you you kill somebody? Why would you crucify somebody to save these lost sinners if justice doesn't matter? We'll just look over it. Wave the magic wand. God's not just. What a waste. What a waste. Son of God's death. And, you know, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He says, The cross is foolishness and a stumbling block. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. If we take away God's justice, he has no power and he's dumb. What a waste. But that's not the case, right? God is just. We must never neuter God of his justice. That's what you do when you do that. Don't do it. Stand firm on it and say, God is holy. That's what these prophets are hitting on over and over and over. God is holy. God is powerful. We must not look over it. We must not shy away from it. We need to lean into it. Just like J.D. preached this last week. Those who know their sin most intimately are those who gaze at a holy God most frequently. Right? We need to gaze at this holy God and repent and turn to the Lord. And that's, that's what we'll see littered through here as well. What's, what's important for us to understand, a quick side note, is when you're looking at the prophets, it's more like looking at a mixtape. Okay? It's not always chronological, and Amos is like that. Okay? You have a compilation of sermons, poetry, um, prophecy. It's all mixed in there, so it's not always like, okay, I'm reading front to back reading the whole thing, this is how it was, and this is how it ends. It's not narrative. So it's important for us to understand you get a lot of repetition. It's not, okay, first three chapters are accusation, then I get judgment, and then I get repentance and mercy. It's, it's littered through there. They're hitting it over and over and over again. So make sure you're looking for that. That's why we're kind of hopping around a little bit. And as we look at repentance, I want you to kind of flip over to chapter 4. In chapter 4, we see um, a call to repentance. In chapter 4, they're being um, accused again and declared um, to be found wanting, to be found guilty. And on the second half of chapter 4, he actually goes through this refrain, where he's stating all these, he's mentioning grain and water and cattle, all these things that he's actually taking away. He's, he's saying, you, you're, you had need for bread, and the refrain is, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I took away your water, I put it on this town, but not this town. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. He's, he's doing this not to make their lives difficult, but because he's saying these gods that you worship for your bread and your grain, for water, for your vineyards, for your cattle, they do nothing. They're not good. You can keep going, you can keep sacrificing and committing immoral sexual sins, but it does nothing for you. That's not who's in charge of all these areas of your life that you want to prosper and grow. And he did it so that they would return to him. Yet he says five times, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Look with me in verse 12. Because this is um, a huge statement. I think this is one of the climaxes of the book um, in regards to God's holiness and his justice. Remember that refrain, yet you did not return to me, yet you did not return to me. Verse 12, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Did you catch that? You did not return to me. You didn't come back to me. You didn't come back to me. Prepare to meet your God. He's coming in because he loves them, because he wouldn't cast them aside. He's made promises to these people. He says, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man, what is his thought? Who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. God is holy and powerful and will judge sin. We need to soak in that. We need to be under that. Turn with me in chapter 5. Continuing to call his people to himself. In verse 4 he says, seek me and live. In verse 6 he says, seek the Lord and live. In verse 14 he parallels this thought. Okay? He said, seek me, seek the Lord and live. Come back to me. And in 14, he says, seek good and not evil, that you may live. There's a parallel here. Seeking the Lord and doing good. That's why he's he's setting up this social and political injustice sins with these religious sins that they're committing and saying, if you're not seeking the Lord, you're not going to be doing good. You need to seek me first and live as my chosen people. And later in in verse 24, he gives us the solution, right? In verse 24 in chapter 5, it's this beautiful poetic verse that actually says what Israel is supposed to be doing, what it's supposed to look like to be God's chosen people. And he says in verse 24, But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an everlasting flow stream. That's what it's supposed to look like. And this is where we get our summary culmination statement for the book of Amos. So if you've taken a note about the book of Amos, this is kind of a thesis statement important for us to capture. It says, True worship of God should always lead to justice, righteousness, and loving our neighbors. I'll say it again. True worship of the one true God should always lead to justice, righteousness, and And loving our neighbor. The exact opposite. The exact reasons that Israel was being judged. For injustice. Not pursuing righteousness and oppressing their neighbor. Enslaving them to debt. But we see throughout the book of Amos that Israel did not repent. They instead chose to live in their sin. And judgment was coming. But it's important for us to take a look at the fourth piece, uh, which is mercy, right? We've talked about accusation. We've talked about judgment. And we've talked about the call to repentance that they would come. We also want to look at mercy. But before we get to mercy, i got to talk about one of the songs we sing. Because it has just been hammered into me. I listen to it probably a couple times a week on my way to work or home. And I've been thinking about it back from numbers. So this has been stewing on me for a while. And what I found as I was looking through the book of Amos is this song that we sing here at Redemption Hill, Only a Holy God is the name of the song, is so beautifully formative for our hearts. Because it asks questions that you answer as soon as you hear the question. You know the answer to it. And it's important for us to know that the structure of this song is paralleled with the prophet's message. They're constantly hammering on the character of God and how we're supposed to respond in light of that. So let me just run through this song because as I've listened to this song more and more, I try to think about it as I go through the questions. Think about how you respond to these questions before grace. Okay, think about this holy God who is omnipotent all-powerful before you have grace. Who else commands the hosts of heaven? The army of angels, right? He's got a Legions of armies of angels. Who else has that power? Who else can make every king bow down? That's what we see constantly. These kings think they're bigger than their britches. Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? Talks about that in Amos and in Psalm 139. The answer is only a holy God. What other beauty demands such praises? What other splendor outshines the sun? What other majesty rules with justice? Only a holy God. And then the chorus we sing is, Come and behold him. And I love hearing all the voices say, Come and behold him, but I tremble after those first two verses. Come and behold this all powerful king of the hosts of angels. I feel like ducking's the right response to that. Come and behold him. Are you kidding me? I know my sinfulness and it's not in line with who this God is that you're describing. We say he is the only, the one and the only. Cry out. The cry here for me when I'm singing is mercy. Cry out and sing holy forever a holy God. Come and worship this holy God. That's what we're called to do. The next verse says, What other glory consumes like fire? What other power can raise the dead? He's not at the mercy of death like we are. He's powerful over it all. What other names remains undefeated? Only a holy God. I'm defeated. I fail multiple times. But God has never lost. And he never will. And we sing again, come and behold him. Again, I'm ducking, I'm hiding, I'm cowering. Come and behold him. How? How? And then we get mercy. We see grace. And this, usually, I'm crying on my way to work when we get to this verse. It says, who else could rescue me from my failings? Who else but a holy God? Who else would offer his only son for your sin? Only a powerful God, only a mighty God. Who else invites me to call him father? To actually bring me into right relationship with him. Only a holy God. Only my holy God. And then the final time we sing the verse, it's come and behold him. Now I can behold him. He's he's brought me into his family. He's made me holy because of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I can stand before him. And behold, this all-consuming, brighter-than-the-sun, glorious God. What an accomplishment. What a glorious God we have. And we cry out, instead of fear, we cry out saying, Abba, Father. Daddy. There's a relationship there. He's forever a holy God. Come and worship this holy God. That's the response that we should have when we look at this holy God and see all that he's done throughout all of history. But we got to continue. Last couple verses um, of Amos, we're actually going to look at chapter 7 through chapter 9. Chapter 7 through chapter 9, we see five visions, okay? We see five visions. We see um, in seven, we see three of them. We see locusts that are coming as judgment, and Amos pleads with God, and God relents. And then again, he sees a vision of fire consuming the nation. And Amos pleads with God, and God relents. This is God's mercy, that he doesn't send these judgments on his people. And then the third vision we see is a plumb line. And I talked to Daniel in small group, and I was like, "Dan, you know what a plumb line is? He's like, well, plumb is like a wall, right? Like a wall is supposed to be plumb. And I was like, man, you're so smart. I never would have thought of that. I was like, a plumb line, you just take a plumb and you just smash it on the ground and you smear the juice out of it or something. You make a line. In the... So a plumb line is actually a string with a weight at the bottom. So gravity is defining this vertical line, right? It says, this is God's standard of justice, right? And as a wall stacks up, if it's not built against a plumb line, it's going to be skew. It's going to be off. And that's what they're doing. They're missing the target. They're not straight in line with God's word. And he's saying, I've drawn a plumb line. You've missed the mark. And then we see in chapter 8 a ripe fruit that's being devoured. That's that's the fourth vision. And then the fifth one, we see a vision of the Lord himself. And the Lord himself is destroying the kingdom of Israel. So we see these visions of judgment. But in the last couple verses of chapter 9 is where we get um, not just the destruction from the Lord of hosts on the nation of Israel, but we see restoration. We see God's mercy, his plan of reconciliation. All of, all of this coming to a culmination in the last uh, verses 11 through 15 where he says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. So he's following this, this vision of God destroying the house of Israel. And he's saying, I'm going to raise it up again. I will raise it up again. Repair its breaches. Raise it up out of its ruin and rebuild it as in the days of old. And in verse 15 he says, I will plant them On their land, and they will never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Personal signature there at the end. This is hope for the nation of Israel that although they're being exiled, although judgment is coming for their sin. That God has not forgotten his promises. That's why Genesis is so foundational for the Old Testament. We have to know Genesis. Because if we don't know God's Abrahamic covenant that he's made with his people, we don't understand this glimmer of hope. We don't understand that God's going to bring them back again because he's made a covenant promise that is unconditional. I will accomplish these promises land, seed, and blessing. And he's saying, I will bring my people back. I will bring them back to myself. I will put them in the land that I promised to give to the the inheritance of Abraham. And it will be an eternal kingdom. A kingdom forever. This is the hope that we end with in the book of Amos. Obadiah. I got five minutes, right? (laughs) Obadiah. All right. Here's the good thing about Obadiah. We don't know a lot. Okay, we got 21 verses, so we're going to go quick. Obadiah, there's about 12 of them when you look through the kings and chronicles and we can't pin down which one. Bad news. Other bad news, we don't even know when this actually was written. Technically, it's judgment against Edom, okay? And they hated Israel, okay? Reason? Back to Genesis, right? We're talking about Abraham and Sarah, they have a son Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah, they have twins and their names are Jacob and Esau. Jacob who becomes name, Israel, and Esau, who becomes, name, Edom. Edom. All right, good job. I was wondering if I'd have to help with that one. You guys are on it. Pay attention. Edom, right? Rebecca was told, you have warring nations in your tummy. Okay? That was true, played out through these pages of history. And Edom, what's unique about this book is Edom has a letter to themselves for their judgment. All the other prophets are talking about the nation Israel or the nation Judah. And so we actually get to see here a letter specifically to Edom. So how does that play out? Israel was attacked in four different time frames, a joint attack um, multiple times from Egypt. Then there was the Philistines. um, And um, then there was Israel, the northern nation, attacked Jerusalem. um, And then Babylon, finally, also attacked and sacked Jerusalem. So there's four different time stamps that this letter could fall in, and we only have 21 verses to try to figure it out probably is going to be either the second one with the Philistines or the fourth one with Babylon, more likely the Philistines. okay? Because the prophets talked about Babylon in a certain way, and we don't see a lot of those stamps in here in this short book. So most likely it's going to be during that time frame um, if we try to deduce it. But we don't know. Obadiah just means servant of the Lord. That's what it means. Um, And again, we don't know exactly where it falls. So without knowing much about the author... Or much about even necessarily the exact time stamp, how are we going to get some, some helpful information out of Obadiah? Well, what we need to know is it's a vision or in a poem um, written by a prophet of God, and it's about God's sovereignty over all nations and God's faithfulness in his promises. Okay? A theme we see pretty much throughout all of the, the prophets is God's judgment of sinful man and God's mercy in fulfilling his promises. So we break down the book of Obadiah in these uh, three categories. We have God's judgment on Edom, God's judgment on all the nations, and God's restoration of Israel. Okay, we have God's judgment on Edom specifically. And then we have um, two verses on God's judgment on all nations. And we see God's restoration of Israel. So in the first 14 verses, we get this, um, accusation and judgment on edom and there 's two sins that come up: one is pride and one is violence toward judah that 's why we 're following this timestamp because they specifically um, attacked um, there were people of from Jerusalem that were actually uh, running away um, from the attack and they would like go block them off and let the bad guys come and kill them I mean they they hated the nation of Israel and Judah, and this played out multiple times throughout history and the reason that Edom is being addressed here is because of God's promise back in Genesis chapter 12. He's saying those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. He's saying and he's fulfilling what he promised to Abraham and that's why this book is important for us to understand because we see God's faithfulness even in the sins that are committed against them by other nations. And we need to see that judgment is on all the nations. Key verse kind of being the in-between hinge piece is verse 15. He says, after all this judgment, <clears throat> excuse me, against Edom, he says, "For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations." So he's he's bridging out. He's saying not just is Edom's pride an offense to a holy God, but it's all nations. All pride is an offense to a holy God. He's sovereign over them all. Edom is just a type, right? Their sin of pride and violence is just a type of God's judgment for all pride and, and violence against God's people. It's important, it's, it's actually interesting uh, for us to catch that Edom and Adam actually in the Hebrew are the same exact letters. There's just different like dots and commas and different things I don't understand, but it's the exact same letter. So Edom means red, but Adam means humanity. Right, And it's kind of like in Hebrew when they're talking about poetry and stuff. They're seeing all this and we're just seeing it in English. And it looks like, oh yeah, it's got four letters each with a D and an M. And it looks totally different because there's different vowels. But in Hebrew it actually means something. And they're seeing this type played out because the prophet's actually saying this is for all the nations. All the nations are going to be judged for their pride and offense to a holy God. And then the last verses, 17 through 21, uh, we see um, the restoration of Israel. We see God vindicating his people for the sins of these other nations committed against them and he restores the possession of the promised land to his people, Israel. It's important for us to to get a glimpse through these books of God's holiness for us to respond appropriately. We need to, to spend more time in the prophets. I believe I've been impacted by it more and more as I study and I understand God's holy, just wrath for sin and how I'm living in response to that. Am I living a life of repentance? God is calling for us to repent, believe, and trust in him. And he's shown mercy at the cross. Will we respond in faith, trusting in the almighty God of hosts that he has provided Jesus to save, and that we can trust in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for the book of Amos and Obadiah. We thank you that we can look in your word, and we can see more of your plans played out through redemptive history, that you are a God who keeps your promises, you are a God who must judge sin, and that we should respond in faith knowing that we are grateful that you are not a God like us, not a God who could, would fail maybe to, to keep your promises, a God who would let injustice go, but you are a holy, just God that we can come to, we can cry and rely on. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. We pray that it would be transformative in our lives that we would respond in faith seeing that you our God alone, that you are the Lord of hosts and that we can come to you because of Jesus and cry, Abba, Father. We thank you, God, for your word. We pray that you'd bless the rest of our service today. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things, amen.